Welcome to episode 47 of the Owl and Badger podcast. My name is Tim and I'm joined by my very good friend Helen. And we are two Christians who are seeking to understand the world around us through a biblical worldview. We want to encourage our listeners to apply critical thinking to current events and pursue truth as we seek to live for Christ. For this episode, our special guest is someone we've been looking forward to speaking with ever since we heard about his courageous and costly stand for the gospel through his unwavering commitment to biblical orthodoxy. Our guest is a Christian academic theologian, writer and preacher, and a father of five young children with a sixth on the way. Just under a year ago, in March 2023, he was fired by the Evangelical College where he had worked for almost seven years for posting a tweet on his personal account which expressed a biblical view on sexuality, a view held by the vast majority of Christians throughout the world. So, Aaron Edwards, welcome to the Owl and uh, Badger podcast. It's great to have you join us. Uh, thank you, Tim. Yeah, good to, good to be with you, even at this ungodly hour of the morning, which makes our, <laughs> our voices sound deeper, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, even mine. <laughs> yes, I think, I think that's that's a good point. That's a good point. Um yeah, so yeah, great to have you here. Just to kind of set the scene, although we've we have mentioned you, Aaron, in our, in our podcast a number of number of times in previous episodes, it would be really uh, good and helpful, I think, if you can just share a little more about that mm-hmm. infamous tweet and I think what's happened mm-hmm. as a result. So so we can basically yeah. set the set the scene for the rest of the episode. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, my so my uh, as you say, I was working at this Bible College, Cliff College. Um, evangelical uh, affiliated with Methodism uh, for seven years. I was running the master's admission program. I was the lecturer in theology, preaching, and mission. And um, it was the, throughout my time there. I was there was always a slight tension in in that, as with many Bible colleges today, um, there was a, a there's been a move to academic validation, which brings with it certain hooks. And so we're always trying to maintain the evangelical distinctives of the college whilst, uh, I guess, fighting the bureaucratic battles for validation continue, not just mm. not because we're in threat of losing validation, really, but just because you have to do certain things which distract you from the main vision and, and start diluting things and people start worrying more about their reputation, etc. I think we got quite good. I, I, I had many uh, meetings with our validating university, the University of Manchester over the years. But we also had pressure from the culture at large and the denomination that was affiliated with the college, the um, British Methodist Church. And so some of these kind of, yeah, we could call them rainbow vibes in culture, or we could just <laughs> just general progressives, uh, the general progressive slide, um, it was harder and harder to hold the line there. So I think I, I was uh, working to try to maintain the college's distinctiveness from a sort of position of leadership, though not executive leadership. So I was running a programme. Um, which gave me a fair bit of influence, but and then you know helping to get other evangelical faculty members on board and things like that. Yeah. But still, ultimately, institutionally, we were moving in a certain direction, um, and you can stem the tide for so long, but it, it seems like it go, it's going in that direction. It's very hard to fight against it. But I did feel called to stay there. I felt called to continue fighting on, and, and it was many, as many people said, especially alumni of the college, it was the last evangelical bastion. In Methodism in, mm. in, in Britain. Mm. Of course, this is the home place of Methodism, and Methodism has been so powerfully influential upon so many churches worldwide. And I always enjoyed, you know, 
connecting with global Methodists who weren't part of the Western version of Methodism, and they're far, you know, very different. They're, they're far more orthodox, far more radical, uh, a greater sense of biblical commitment, and, and a striving for biblical holiness. And yeah. um, the college I was at had all of that stuff written on its, you know, on its websites, on its, you know. Um, it's sort of statements of belief, but actually in practice, it, it works out very differently. And I think that's kind of what, what came to a head for me. I, I was challenging these issues on LGBT stuff for years yeah. behind the scenes. We were all discussing it. There's a, a variety of people in faculty who had similar views to mine. Not, I don't think anyone would have said the stuff I would have said, um, because generally speaking, there's a thing, part of the, the thing I mentioned earlier about academic validation can also be this, it breeds a kind of cautiousness. Mm. Um, and so... People want, want to keep their jobs. They want to keep institutions happy, um, and sometimes without them realizing, it can affect uh, faithfulness of principles. But equally, just people just wanting to be—they what they would say is prudent—and so they wouldn't say stuff in meetings that I would probably say. Um, trying to be constructive, always trying to um, help the course and, and help the uh, help the college in many ways. But um, yeah, so that was happening for years. I was expressing that this, if we move down this route for for not making a clear stance against gay marriage, when the Methodist Church eventually and inevitably votes on it, it, was, it felt like it was a real done deal for a few years because um, there were so many high up Methodists who were already in same sex relationships who were involved in drafting the report that went right. to the Methodist Conference. Okay. Yeah, um, it was just really obvious that, that there was a sort of I would say a kind of corruption going on um, in, in the process, but of course, as people are voting on this thing, so people were being persuaded um, by the uh, by the pressure. So, Cliff College is like involved in um, in that by proxy, really, um, and so mm -hmm. they feel torn between evangelical distinctives and history, and they, all their alumni and their, you know, half of their current students still very firmly conservative, the evangelical. And then this new wave of progressive stuff coming in. Um, I yeah, I think I said several times an evangelical, once the vote came through, once they voted on marriage, I said an evangelical is going to find it really difficult to express their view. They can you, you probably say they can hold their view, but if they actually express it in its fullness, they can only express that view um, by saying, I believe in the traditional view or something, mm, but vague. Yes. Benign. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I was saying the conservative view is not the, is obviously not the same. Um, like philosophically speaking, it's not the same kind of view. It's of a different kind because the progressive view sounds all inclusive. All you're doing with the progressive view, though, what they think they're doing is, we are just adding something to the doctrine of marriage. We believe a man, a marriage is between one man and one woman, mm -hmm. and one man and one man and one woman and one woman. So it just looks like you're, you're expansive and it's very positive. There's a positive way of expressing that for, for progressives. For conservatives, the the view is has to include a negative. It has to include one man, one woman for life, but not, distinctively not one man, one man, one woman or multiple. So... This is the, the I said if you say if you say the conservative has to accept both views and some will best to tolerate both views, they're not going to be able to say that, are they? Because they're going mm. to offend everyone on the other side. And I actually said I understand that. If you're a gay person, you said God thinks this is so amazing and wonderful, and suddenly you you tell the someone else comes along because actually you're under God's judgment. This is this is terrible, and actually this is a, a problem. 
Yeah. So they're going to feel offended and confused. This isn't going to help people at all. And we're trying to basically do a, a, a monumental fudge here, which is going to cause all sorts of problems. I didn't really, genuinely didn't expect that I would be the example <laughs> to to, uh, to prove my own theory, which I've been said, saying for years. But it's because I, I was on, I joined Twitter in uh, 2021 um, after and started a podcast and a blog because I really felt a calling from the Lord to speak more publicly about a lot of these socio-political so-called secondary issues which were mm. actually influencing the church substantively. And so, yeah, that's me. I, I'm there you know, doing that, speaking about all these things, talking about LGBT, gay conversion therapy and stuff like this. And it just so happened that in 2023, the beginning of 2023, the same-sex blessings uh, nonsense within the Church of England was going on and uh, the discussions of it. And I was hearing from all of these people like, you know, the, the gay vicars and things of like that, going, this is just inevitable. Just, you need to kind of get with the program, catch yeah, up church, yeah. come on. I mean, stop, stop even stop even fight this anymore. You know, it's this, it's this done deal. And it, it did feel that way because you think you, the, the way direction of society has gone. If we remember the civil partnerships in the, in Britain, came in uh, around 20 years ago, and it was said then, it was unthinkable then, just 20 years ago, that we'd have gay marriage in society. That wasn't an option, on, that wasn't even a thought. And some of the people who'd have said it was, would have said, you're being an alarmist, you're being crazy, just let, let gay people have equal rights in, in this thing. How, how awful are you for even raising this as a possible next step, as it could be, for, uh, for marriage, and of course, it didn't take long about about a decade, for or just under a decade, for um, gay marriage to come into society, and then of course movements come into the church from that place. It was quite obvious to me this is just a movement um, following the culture, and mm. um, yeah. And so I started speaking out about it. I mean, I had been already on podcasts and blogs, as I said, and, and Twitter, and just this one tweet that went viral, basically, that, that a lot of people jumped on, and that that was the one that ultimately caused all the trouble. So what I said was. Um, homosexuality is invading the church. Evangelicals no longer see the severity of this because they're busy apologising for their apparently barbaric <clears throat> homophobia, whether or not it's true. This is a gospel issue, by the way, because if sin is no longer sin, we no longer need a saviour. So that was my tweet, and that was what ultimately got me fired because the college said that brought them into disrepute with all of these Methodists and atheists, actually, who'd, who'd kind of <laughs> complained and the, yes. the LGBT lobby, they cared more about that. And I and I said, well, if you do, if you fired me for this, this is like, I think outrageous because it's an evangelical view. It's what you told me when you voted the progressive view, and you said mm. we're going to have contradictory mm. convictions where we can agree to disagree. Well, this is me expressing my view. I haven't attacked any gay people in it. I haven't said um, they're worse people than some other others. Whatever. I'm, I'm just literally saying this is a problem. Homosexuality is a sin. It's invading the church. It's not come from within the church, has it? It's come from outside. Mm -hmm. It is yeah. an army invading, yeah. as it were. Um, and so, yeah, and really the point was to challenge <clears throat> evangelicals to speak up about it rather than do their fake apology thing, which everyone does now because they, they want to protect their reputation. And that's just how the world does it. You just see celebrities do it. You see um, uh, corporations do it. They just do this ridiculous... We, we understand this has happened, we're so sorry, etc. It's just, I think Christians should be better than that. We should do reconciliation properly. If you actually need to repent of something, you really should repent um, and and even seek restitution. But I think that this is not this is the problem that we, we've seen um, churches just following the world yes. in this way, and it's been yeah. very 
embarrassed. I think it's embarrassing, even as a witness. Uh, I think people sort of um, see the uh, the lack of backbone in the Church of England. It's, it's a real. It, it doesn't show the gospel in a good light, even though people are often doing it because they think that they're doing it to witness. So yeah, for me that was the wider sort of a, a little bit of a long narrative there, but the wider reason as to why I was fired. And I was suspended immediately, like the next day after my tweet, and fired two just over two weeks later. Um, and then tried to appeal it to Methodism, but um, was rejected. So, yeah, wow. I mean, thank you. It's it's certainly. I mean, we know that it's been it's been a very, like we said in the introduction, it's been a very costly thing for you and your family because you has you've had to move house, mm. haven't you? And and there's been mm. a lot of a lot of things that have happened since since then yeah. as well. Um, I think. Yeah, I mean, we'll probably talk about this uh, in, in shortly, actually. But but it just reminds mm. me that everything we we were involved with as Christians, it places us on mm. a trajectory. And mm. we're either going closer to God and his purposes and plans for us or mm. away from them. And like you were saying, mm. you know, with the... Um, um, where uh, yeah, I mean the whole thing with with how gay gay marriage came in from civil partnerships. You know the civil partnerships thing places on a trajectory, and I think we as Christians mm. we need to be awake to that. And that's one of the things I think yeah. you've done so well is to is to help you know wake wake believers up to that. Um, and I think that's that's particularly yeah, it's particularly encouraging, mm. and exciting for us to 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 hear that. I think. Mm. Mm. Oh, good. Well, you know, I, I think yeah, more Christians need to um, need to be awake and aware yeah. and willing. I guess at this time, yeah, yeah. So, Aaron, um, <clears throat> Tim, and I have both listened to your testimony on um, Simon Gilbo's podcast, uh, Inspired, mm. which is mm. really worth a listen. I think we've linked to it before. We'll do that again. Yeah. Um, but I know on there you talk about. Um, being shamelessly biblical and I've heard you mm. speak on that as well and I noticed it's on your business card which I think is excellent <laughs> um, so we want to spend a bit of time hearing about that in a, a bit more depth um, I mean I mm. would say that being shamelessly biblical should be the default position for a follower of Jesus but um, why do you think this isn't the case for much of the UK church? Mm. Yeah good question I, I think we have a basically the reason is we have a a posture of uh, an apologetic posture basically and an apologetic you know can mean we think of apologetics the sort of field of study and Christian practice maybe a subset of evangelism where you're giving an apologia a defence um, so it doesn't it doesn't always need to be passive um, the notion of an apologetic stance, but it can often end up being passive because you're not on the offensive and you're not, um, actually, I, 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 people used to speak of evangelism um, yeah. in the, even the 20th century as aggressive. So there's a phrase that Cliff College used to use. So I used to remind my students of it as often. I, I'd bring up these old pamphlets that, and put them up on the, on the, on the screen um, that Cliff College used to stand for aggressive evangelism. And that meant not obviously going and hitting people violently <laughs> with Bibles, um, but as it might, as well, it's got a terrifying prospect for many people. But actually, it just meant front-footedness, um, non-passiveness. It was like in sport, where you, you say one team is doing well because they are aggressive, which mm. means that they take the game to their opponent. They don't wait for their opponent to, to do something and go, oh gosh, what should we do next? That can be what happens in an apologetic stance. You're already on the back foot. 
you're having to react to what the opponent is doing. You're not actually moving forward. And, and uh, you know, often reminded of the fact that when, when Jesus says, I've heard, uh, and also I like in the stage called Doug Wilson, mm. who's yeah, referred yeah, yeah. to the, the um, when Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. you. We've often imagined that as though there's these like moving gates with wheels on that are coming at you, mm-hmm. the gates of hell coming at you. But obviously it means that you're supposed to be attacking the gates of hell and they won't prevail against you. you will, you're actually supposed to be on the offensive. It's not just that the Christian life is not just a pious inward uh, conflict where you're waiting for the enemy to attack you with his fiery darts. Yes, we do have a, a shield of faith, as Ephesians 6 um, calls us to to take up against those attacks, we will be attacked. Jesus literally said that would happen if you follow him. Um, but we also have a sword, um, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Um, and what else is a sword for? But to to actually divide and actually to be offensive in the right kinds of way for the purposes of the kingdom of God. And so I think it's become, we've been infected in the UK church with that kind of apologetic posture, which has made us, perpetually winsome and i would probably put winsome in inverted commas because that's a whole a whole issue of um yeah we could probably actually maybe come back to the winsomeness thing later on but really that in terms of like getting back to how this affects biblical authority is we have as i said earlier tick boxes on the websites and the, and in the documentation which, te- which says you have to be adhering to biblical authority if you're evangelical it's kind of one of the distinctives of what it means to be evangelical and We've said that officially speaking, but not in practice, because it's when something comes to attack, it's when those attacks come, um, that we've actually, rather than going out and meeting the enemy and going, yeah, yeah, this is what we believe, this is good, and what you believe is bad, actually. Um, we've sort of been embarrassed by what it says in the Bible, and we've half believed it, or we've we've believed that we've had to believe it because God said so, and it says it in the textbook, and so I guess we have to believe it. Um, and that, that's increasingly the case with some LGBT stuff. I mean, for many years, even for many evangelicals, I think, we're still in a place where most evangelical churches don't agree with gay marriage. Mm. And the, even those Methodists, in the evangelical Methodists who voted for this new ridiculous, you know, pact with Saruman, um, they, <laughs> they, will have, they will have actually been persuaded that it's more loving and kind of them to do it as evangelicals. So they won't, it's not because necessarily they believe that gay marriage is biblical. It's because they, they've been persuaded that it's unkind and unloving to not allow these people to, to have their other view. And maybe it gets in the way of the gospel. So let's compromise and, and we'll plow on and we'll carry on doing our thing. You do your thing. And, and it won't really affect things. And that's kind of what we've also done with the world. Let's not, let's not be salt and light. Let's not go out there and sort of try and, help actually and let's let's not talk about morality because then we'll be moralists and pharisees and it won't be won't be useful at all and it won't affect us we'll just carry on being the holy church off to the side and and lo and behold we don't look that holy actually in the end because those ideas end up seeping in to the mm. church or invading the church which is sort of what my why my language of my tweet was was sort of getting at and so yeah this the apologetic stance ends up meaning yeah we don't we we we're worried by what they'll say because the secular because we've not been salt and light in the world and, and the secular influences has grown and the rot has grown uh, around us and also gained a lot of steam, a lot of power. Um, so that they said the kind of LGBT agenda and culture is, is phenomenally powerful to, for, for a minority group, for a disempowered, marginalized group. They are 
it's phenomenally powerful. People lose their jobs all the time if they fall afoul of the um, of the rainbow. And so I think that's made us, you know, as I said, to take that step back rather than taking the step forward. And I think in battle, that's it's the time to take the step forward rather than constantly being in retreat. There may be times strategically to be in retreat for all sorts of reasons, but we've been in retreat for decades and we haven't been on the front foot. In fact, when I preached a sermon at Cliff College in 2019 at the chapel, um, where I, I really, it's a pretty gentle sermon, probably should have been a bit more on the front foot, but I was, I was trying to just tentatively make my way into this and say, look, this is happening. I've got a room full of people on, in all sorts of different places. I was filling in for someone um, preaching on Amos uh, last minute. And it, I couldn't get around the fact that what Amos is talking about is precisely like going to the temple and, you know, offering your worship to God whilst continuing in sexual immorality. And he's mentioning things like Sodom and Gomorrah. And I, I really felt a call to, to preach on this and, and to mention homosexuality coming in to the church yeah, at that very time, because that's what was being discussed at the Methodist Conference. Um, that sermon got taken down off the website, even though the, the, at that time the college couldn't say it said anything wrong. The principal came and said, it's not because I've thrown you under a bus, I haven't, I just for the optics, just for the mm. political, <laughs> you know, and I was like, right, okay. So he started, the only thing about, so the students were very confused, so why has that sermon been taken down from the website? It, it didn't, it didn't, didn't Aaron just say things that are quite normal and evangelical? Um, and I heard there's a big, there's a men's ministry group visiting the college that week, and they said, Half of them didn't like it because they were on the left theologically and half of them really liked it and said, I haven't heard anyone in an evangelical context preach against homosexuality for, well, you know, over a decade. Mm. And I just thought, wow, that is true because I haven't. I haven't heard it. And so, so all of these apparently terrible Westboro Baptist style aggressive uh, evangelicals who are being so horrible and mean to gay people, well, there's a whole group here who said they've not even heard a sermon on homosexuality in over a decade. So why is that happening at, at just the time when we you'd think a few sermons on this issue might be what might be worthwhile? Um, but it's because we've been ashamed. We, we've we've thought, gosh, does it really say that? Does it really put it like that? Oh my goodness, um, does it have to say? Does it have to really say it like that? Well, yeah, like that. That this is why scriptures are like the authority over us because over time cultural traditions come into the church even especially ironic with protestantism because we're supposed to be the um those who mm -hmm. are um putting the bible above the authority and the traditions of the church we do have traditions and we don't say they're all terrible but we just say that they are governed and regulated by the authority of scripture and actually it's gone the other way around the way that we've approached things in the church the things that we've gotten used to are now telling are telling us how we ought to read the Bible, telling the Bible what to do, as it were, when really the Bible is out, gives us our marching orders. And it's far more uncomfortable than many of us um, have thought. And so that's why I think we need to be shamelessly biblical, because we have to go, no, we believe it, we believe all of it. We are, this is this is our authority, this is the rock on which we stand. Like, come and get us if you want. Um, but we might come and get you, because this is actually good for you as well. And so it has to be that sense of being on the front foot, and that, that's what it means to be shamelessly biblical rather than apologetically biblical. Um, a, a small caveat to that might be that there are some cultures, and I've had a student, a really good former student, a missionary in in, in Africa, she uh, emailed me, not quite sure about the use of uh, shamelessly, because in, the, in some cultures, um, like, like many African cultures, the notion of shame is so significant. Mm. And so oh, okay. to yeah. be, I'm shameless. Yeah. To be shameless is like, you know, it's like flagrant, 
brazen, sinful. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously there are, and that's how Paul refers to um, shame, you know, shameless acts um, mm. about homosexuality. Mm. But that's partly why I wanted to use that phrase as well, because I wanted to say that um, in our culture, because the because now the Pharisees are outside the church. Well, you know, it's, we've often said that the Pharisees are inside the church, just the conservatives. They're always painted as the Pharisees. Actually, the progressives are the Pharisees. Now. Mm-hmm. They're the yes. ones who, yes. who come at you <laughs> and they have their rule book and they've got these things you can and can't say. Mm. They're trying to trap you. They're trying to get you in trouble. And, and you're falling afoul of that just by being biblical, just by owning that. And so you're shamed for having biblically moral views. It used to be the case that maybe a prostitute would be shamed. I'm not going to hang out with that. Jesus, don't go and have a meal with that prostitute. How terrible. Um, she's she's a shameful woman. And Jesus is actually very open and forgiving and compassionate to those who are repentant sinners. As, as uh, And he was less compassionate, actually, to those who, who were religious and thought that they had the right moral answer. Um, and actually, that, that's now the case that we're the ones being shamed. So I've been I've lost my job. I've been publicly shamed for being homophobic, uh, as though what I've said was homophobic. I don't believe it is. Very mm, mm. vaguely defined term. So, yeah. So owning that, I, though, though I think it risks um, offending some others in other cultures who might not get that. I think it's worth it in a Western culture for, for sure, but because it's precisely speaking into the fact that we're it, this is going to cause us personal shame, and we should actually yeah. own that because we're supposed to be different. We're, we're light speaking to darkness. Yeah. Can I just just on, on just while we still on this this particular area? Mm. I mean, one one things uh, one that how 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 much or if at all do you think the um, the the ideology of feminism has has impacted the church being um, less aggressive in terms of evangelism and, and adopting a much more apologetic approach to mm. to to sharing mm. sharing the gospel because. As you were speaking now, I was thinking actually that, yeah, what, what's your thoughts on that? Because it seems there could be mm. maybe some links, or maybe they're not. It'd be interesting. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> I could talk about feminism all day. Uh, um, yeah, feminism is one of those ones uh, which the evangelical churches, especially people I know, it's really, it's, it's a real it's a real fault line um, because there are many people who would be amening and high-fiving what I have said even. Maybe they wouldn't say it like I've said it ever on LGBT without realizing that they are actually ashamed of the stuff um, that the Bible will say on gender. And they don't think it's related to a view on LGBT because LGBT, they think is completely clear because of whether it's Leviticus, homosexuality is an abomination or Romans one, then the natural uh, relations being, being exchanged for unnatural relations Mm -hmm. or homosexuality being mentioned throughout the epistles um, further on. So, So it's fairly clear. It's really clear. There's no case for gay marriage. It's just obvious. So like when these progressives pull this in, yeah, that's crazy. But what I don't think they realize is that many of their churches have completely changed their view on how they appropriate and talk about gender difference over the last hundred years. And they don't even realize it's happened. And and it's, you, you look back in history and, and we've accepted a lot of these narratives, which is that everything that happened before feminism was chauvinistic and misogynistic and all women were like owned as property and it was all terrible. And then feminism came and saved the day. So it was really wonderful. And everything that came from feminism must be great. And if they do critique feminism, it would only be the absolute radical, like skinheaded lesbian person <laughs> with a you know nose ring or something who, who just sounds very crazy. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to be that kind of radical, crazy feminist. But the rest of feminism is absolutely fine. Like denig- denigrating motherhood is just like, 
an optional extra, sending all your kids to childcare all the time, um, and requiring every family to be a two-income to be a two-income family. Yeah. Um, and virtually all churches just following that route. Like mm. it's fine. The people absolutely there's choices. There are choices. We don't want to force people into situations, and there will be all sorts of exceptional situations. But it's become a norm. And, and, and unusual, for example, so motherhood's become unusual to embrace motherhood and homemaking as a calling, um, which my wife gets all sorts of flack uh, for all the time. And I think her, her first blog mm. post, way before I had a blog, when we first got married many years ago, um, was, yes, this will get me in trouble, because it was, yes, I cook for my husband, and no, I'm not oppressed. That was her first <laughs> blog post that she wrote. And, and, uh, and she got all sorts of flack for that because oh you must you must not realize you're being controlled if you feel like you have to to, to do that and, and i don't think it's really about specifying roles of things when we talk about feminism um and that the bible doesn't go into detail on all those things but it does have really clear it does obviously have those things on Titus too in terms of homemaking isn't it, a significant calling for women proverbs 31 woman is is shows that 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 homemaking calling uh, is a really powerful, even entrepreneurial calling that is very creative mm -hmm. and, and not the kind of thing where we see it in a negative light. So what we, the problem with feminism is it's made, it's allowed us to go back to the Bible and try to make stuff fit so it doesn't fit. Yes. So, yeah. so it's Western secular ideas completely from down, downstream from the French Revolution. Let's get rid of all hierarchies because they're all terrible um, because we saw some really bad hierarchies. And we did even see that with gender. We did see misogyny and chauvinism. So we thought, right, let's follow in the... In, let's follow this route where it leads and, and just destroy hierarchy and pretend that we can equalize everything. And you can't do that. Like so men and women aren't, I mean, in a way, yes, yes, they, they're equal in value, but in a way they're not going to be like equal in every situation. It's not really the, that isn't really the term the Bible uses. It, it uses the language of um, the Galatians three passage, which is often used would, would just be that. Yeah. There's no distinction in Christ in terms of your salvation between whether you're a Jew mm. or a Gentile mm. or, or, or male or female. Feminists have exploited that to high heaven or, or low hell, maybe, and to, to say that you actually, it, it doesn't matter anymore, almost as though that's like some kind of transverse, which mm. becomes, you know, this is now like there is no distinction. And you see, we're on a continuum. So the T on LGBT is precisely to erode gender distinction and to say that actually, yeah, not only can a man just marry a man, that's fine, but actually a man can become a woman, a woman can become a man. So then now you get feminists saying, oh, no, 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 that's terrible. Like a Jermaine Greer or J.K. Rowling or something. Saying, no, trans is terrible. Trans is crazy. We don't, we don't agree with trans. It's like, well, this is what you wanted, isn't it? You Didn't you want us to erode the distinctions between men and women? Mm. Because you thought that inevitably there were hierarchies and men would always oppress the women. Why, why don't we actually believe what the Bible says, which is, do you believe the Bible? So the, for the Christians looking at all of this stuff, you go, do you really think that the Bible doesn't, like women or something do you really think it's oppressive to women i mean that would be a problem maybe you have a deeper questions to ask about the bible but if you're pretending that you actually agree to biblical authority there's a lot of stuff in there that challenges feminism head-on that is utterly incompatible and so at this very moment of confusion for gender in our culture it would it would seem to be a good idea i would i would suggest to dig out those passages that we've been hiding away and being embarrassed by and actually bring them out and say, actually, God really cares about this issue. It may not be a salvific issue, but it, but it has direct links to how people see the gospel in loads of ways. It's often used, even in, I think of Ephesians 5, a husband and wife analogy for the gospel itself, that the whole church is the bride of Christ. It's ultimately a patriarchal image. 
that should drive feminists mad and does. And I know because I've been in academia where you have proper feminism tearing the Bible apart that doesn't even believe in the authority of scripture, but pretends that, um, that it does. And so when I see these, these ideas in culture or coming into churches, people don't realize this is just trickled down from absolutely rabidly anti-God academics who, who want to tear the Bible apart piece by piece. And we're just trying to do it whilst flying that flag for biblical authority. So, yeah, it's very easy to, to, to attack LGBT without realizing that it's actually on the continuum, on the conveyor belt from feminism. And, and it's not to say that everything that, that happened in feminism didn't need to happen at all. Um, like there were things, there were reforms that were needed in, in society. And um, that's a whole bigger question and quite a nuanced one. But it does mean to say that the way it happened shouldn't really have affected the way that we uh, uphold biblical authority and the things that, that aren't compatible with it. So you have to keep pushing back and challenging it. Even if it looks like some good stuff has happened, it, that can often be a bit of a, almost like a, a gateway drug to something worse. And I think that's what we've seen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. yeah mm. definitely. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's so true. I think well, Tim and I have said several times we need to knuckle down and do it. We ought to do. Um, we need a whole podcast on on that issue, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, Do you think, Aaron, that um, I've wondered for a while whether part of this problem with um, too many of us in the church in the West not being prepared to be shamelessly biblical? Do you think part of it is that we're so happy to love our neighbour, but we're we're not so comfortable with loving God effectively. You know, first we're called to love God and that's going to mean obeying him and that's obeying mm. his word in in the Bible. You know, I've wondered mm. whether that's mm. part of the problem that we mm. um you know, we've not we're not putting God first, we're not loving him mm. first and we're not therefore mm. not obeying him. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good a really good point. I think I think it's it's it has become a horizontal love. So the love is love thing in culture, um, which is just a way to you know, excuse any anything anyone basically feels and thinks of themselves or others. They can, as long as they don't offend them or hurt, harm them, it's uh, love is love. And I think Christians are going to have adopted that with the love your neighbour, but it's, it's horizontal and it's not directed mm-hmm. vertically in the sense of we love God and because we love God, we love people. Um, and I think. That's that's why we we end up in the situations we we've got today where we're, we're constantly trying to win people over. This is where the winsomeness thing comes in. Um, of course, you should want to win people. Paul wants to win people in when one Corinthians nine is a good example of that. But um, of, of, you know, seeking to win some by all means, if I can sort of make myself a Jew to a Jew or a Greek to a Greek, whatever. Um, and Loving your neighbour, obviously, we do want to do that. That is a huge, that is a significant part of what it means to be a Christian, to love your neighbour. And we've wanted to love them in a particular way. We've wanted to love them by um, affirming them. And that isn't that often isn't the best way to love your neighbour anyway. Mm. And, of course, the, the great example we do have, of course, the Good Samaritan, where, where the person's, like, unconscious, and you're picking them up, to the, you say, picking them up, taking them to an inn, looking after them, even though they're an enemy. Um, it's... It's very interesting that that example just becomes the standard one, as though that's how we then see all all social situations. Everyone has been beaten up by a um, by a bunch of bandits on the on the side of the road, and we're taking them to the inn. Of course, that is a wonderful example of Christian love, and has influenced the entire world. Um, but actually, it's it's one that doesn't apply to every single situation in that way. We maybe it would it, we we frame it as though 
the marginalized are always this person beaten on the floor. So a gay person, we imagine them, ah, oh, that person's been beaten by mm. Pharisaic conservative bandits in culture mm. or in law or in the church who are all homophobic and horrible and hate them. I must be the good Samaritan by going to help them and get them on their feet again. Now, of course, there are ways, if you do see that actually happening, that absolutely you should do that. If, if someone that you completely profoundly disagree with, you can still go and help them and show them love um, yeah. in all sorts of ways. Yeah. But one of the ways that, that that's been sort of taken over, that motif of loving your neighbour has been, yeah, to 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 affirm them and, and to stop challenging them. And I just think that's something that doesn't link with so many other parts of the New Testament. You know, think about the notion of exposing the sins of darkness that Paul speaks about in Ephesians 5 um, and distancing yourself from that as the church. You know, the way that they may, may even excommunicate someone because of sexual immorality in the church, that just sounds like a very unloving, unkind, sh shunning someone, literally. Don't even eat with such a person. Um, that sounds very awful and unloving. So, so people, that's where the people kind of don't see the whole picture about what, what that profound uh, love um, needs to, needs to how, how it needs to express itself. And I think, as you say, Helen, that, that the fundamental point is if you believe in the authority of Scripture, it's because you actually have a more fundamental love for God. And out of that, a love for holiness, therefore, that comes out, that you're not, you're not going to be distorted with this notion of a secular, worldly way of, seeing neighbour love because otherwise it really does just become I want to be liked I want to be nice I mean who's going to go and attack the good Samaritan and say what a horrible person you are you're not going to get flack potentially I mean arguably you could say from his own people in fairness who, there, were, there were people within a tribe who might come and say yeah stop being nice to that person who's outside our tribe but ultimately within within culture today um, we, we're being told we have to by the Pharisees of our, the rainbow Pharisees of our day we have to um love in this particular we've decided what love is not god and this is what it has to look like so you have to go and do it and we'll actually attack you if you don't you know if you don't do it so it's ironic an ironic reversal of, of of some of the challenges jesus is actually bringing where he's saying you love someone in a way that is going to probably cost you um, because people will say you shouldn't love like that um, and i think that's the yeah the challenge that we have so yeah you're right we need to think love of god needs to orient the way we love our neighbor for sure definitely um what about what about what might you say aaron for a church that maybe has, has gone a little bit off track um in terms of adopting a lot of these um stances that you've described and do you see there's a kind of a starting point for a church that realizes that actually yeah we're 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 ashamed really of God's word, and we want to get back to get back to upholding God's word, sitting under it. Mm. Is there a is there a route back? How what would you what would you say? Yeah, yeah, I, I would. Say, and I think I've said a few times that um, actually I've just started a, um, a another podcast. <laughs> whether I should whether I should be doing that or not, <laughs> but um, um, which has a more distinctive reformational direction to it which is more specifically focused on on the church especially with an angle to the church in britain as well um because i think this is the time a time for reformation a reformational time which which really means that we're trying to go back to the sources of authority the reformation was about going back to the sources it was back to, about saying there have been glosses of traditions that have come over the way we see the bible but like the roman catholic church in the 16th century 
with all of the corruptions and problems it had, and, and there had been many throughout the medieval era, they wouldn't have said they don't believe in the authority of the Bible. It's not the case that the Roman Catholics are saying, yeah, we just don't really care that much about the Bible. They actually did. They, they, had, they held scripture in high regard, such high regard, that the average common person was not permitted to read it in case they made any mistakes in how they interpreted it. Um, and that's why the, the cardinals in Rome would read it in, in the Latin, which isn't even the, yeah, I mean, this, it was sort of seen as a kind of holy sacred language, even though it's not the language of scripture itself. Um, and so that's why Martin Luther is then translating it into terminology that people can actually understand and, and putting it in the hands of the people to, to, to hold the church authorities to account and the traditions to account. I think that's what we need to do again. And you'd say, well, ha well, hang on, the Bible is in everyone's hands. Like They can get it on their smartphone at any mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. with multiple translations. And they can, they can go and sit to listen to loads of sermons on the Bible uh, all the time in their life evangelical churches. But actually, in reality, if you had to look through what people actually preach on in most evangelical churches, we're not actually covering all of, all of what's in the Bible. And even when we do visit those passages that some people avoid, we avoid the key elements in those passages or the applications yeah. that yeah. I would suggest seem to be the obvious applications that ought to be made in such a time as this. So there's yeah. an element of this that can be slightly subjective because you're saying, well, how do you know uh, this is the time such as this? Well, that, that's, that's where we take prophetic discernment. That's what the prophets have had to do. That's what the role of the spirit in the church is in waking us up um, to what we need to see. And we've seen reformational moments numerous times, not just the reformation. It's not like that wasn't the first time that someone stood up or a group of people stood up to say, actually, I think we've got some things wrong here. We need to go back to the foundations and, and ensure that they're right and get rid of some of the stuff that seems to have crept in. That, that's happened multiple times. It happens all the way through the Old and New Testament, actually, in numerous ways. So it's just the kind of carrying on this ongoing sense of God speaking to his people saying, You've, you've gone astray here. Like Israel, you've gone astray. You need to listen to the prophets again. And all the prophets will be doing, they're not bringing, yeah, they might bring new analogies, but their, their ultimate point is to get back to the word of God that they said that they were following and they yeah. haven't been. Yeah. And so that's kind of what we need, that, that we we, it, we need the church to wake up to realize that even in all of the nice ways that we do things, even if they've been helpful, um, we may need to actually sacrifice some sacred cows of the way that we do church mm. and the way that mm. we think about things. And and I don't know what that will look like entirely. It, it might mean that quite a lot of different kinds of churches can unite on these issues because they're, they're saying, actually, we really we're, we really all believe these are the issues. We believe that the word of God is central. In fact, we're going to commit to actually coming back to this and going, right, what, is it, what, is the, what does Scripture really say? Let's absolutely work hard to make sure we know what it says and we're not imposing anything upon Scripture that might even be led by the culture war and we go, oh, Let's read too much into certain passages. So I'm sure that's always a possibility for any situation, but we do need to understand it and, and live it out. And, and Jesus said famously, you know, the parable of the house on the rock, those, we, we often forget that he prefaces that parable, the man who built his house on the rock, as saying, those who hear these words of mine and mm. do them, put them into practice, yeah. Yeah. are like the man who built his house on the rock. So it's mm. actually fundamentally, you could theologically, you can read that parable as, are you going to obey the Bible or not? So if you believe the Bible is the word of God, and Jesus said, if you hear these words and you put them into practice, you're going to build your house on the rock and the storms will come and they'll beat against the house. It might look for a time like you are 
submerged and under the cosh, but actually at the end of it, in the morning, the storm's cleared, your house will still be standing. And all of those other houses that pallied up with the, the zeitgeist and the, the fads of the time, they will be awash, they will be um, ruins if, if you'll even be able to see them at all. And, and we've seen that many times in church history. We've seen those who've been fated as wonderful, glorious leaders, great preachers, great writers in their time, who no one knows that, other than maybe a few historians and academics who come across them and their legacy and try to re resuscitate them unsuccessfully here and there. But ultimately, people can have absolute you know, worldly fame or even ecclesial worldly fame, um, and it can count for nothing ultimately because it's it's the sheep who hear the word of the, the voice of God, the word of God throughout the centuries. And so often there are many great pastors and many great church leaders who who in their own time were persecuted. Athanasius would be a famous one, um, exiled six times um, for, for challenging Arianism or the heresies of the early church. Um, at the time, there'd be a load of people who just thought Athanasius was really dodgy and controversial and. It's just, you know, he's, he's not one of the upright established figures. And actually, he, he, he proved to be the, the voice of truth that we still listen to today. Same with the likes of John the Baptist or the Troublemakers or Martin Luther at this time. Mm. Um, there, there are many. I mean, we, we go through all through church history. There's just many reforming type voices. We've even seen them in the 20th century as well. And we've seen pastors like um, Charles Spurgeon kicked out mm. of his denomination or Jonathan Edwards fired by his church. At the time, there'll be people going, yeah, they're dodgy, that guy's a bit dodgy. But all they're doing is is trying to stand on the word of God at a time when other people around them are. And so I think the Christians need to be prepared to be called names, even by other Christians. And it's hard because you don't actually want to bring division and schism um, unnecessarily. You don't want to actually divide the church. And that's the, that's the hard issue for people rethinking the church today. You, you want to be able to say, how do we maintain unity, unity in the bond of peace? But we can't do it by compromising and we can't do it by saying, well, we're just going to pull back a little bit, we're just going to tuck in and do what the current set of leaders think is the best thing to do. Because it hasn't actually been very helpful. It's not even been missionally effective in the West, at least. Um, and it's actually those no, churches around the world that see things a lot more clearly. And they're like, you guys are crazy. When I had African students regularly, just bam when they heard me speak a little bit more overtly as an evangelical in classrooms or in seminar discussions, they were quite encouraged because they often met Western leaders who were not speaking like that. And they'd just be like, what's going on here? Like I came over here, this is where Methodism was founded, right? Mm. This is where this is where it's supposed to all come from. This is where all the missionaries came from. They came, especially not just the West, but Britain, especially. Um, we think that this is a wonderful heritage. And now what we do is we take people on tours to show how wonderful our, our heritage is. I mean, there's some great one. There's a great one actually, uh, guys I know who run it in London, Christian Heritage London, which is a wonderful charity, which shows all these great buildings and, you know, monuments and artifacts, which speak of how many amazing missionary, evangelical, historical things there were, which is a good thing to do. But it's sad that that almost becomes what people then gravitate to. Right, let's come and learn some history about when we used to believe the Bible and send it <laughs> yes. around the world. Like yeah. we actually believed yeah. it. And now we need, now we need, you know, Africans, Southeast Asians and, and South Americans to come and re-evangelize us. And I, I welcome that wholeheartedly because we need a lot of their zeal and their biblical commitment because they're a lot clearer about a lot of the issues. Um, yeah, so that's a whole other thing. But yeah, I think so I think reformational times and and a willingness to put things down that we thought were un unmovable um, 
in terms of how we do church or how we think about our missional posture with the world around us and just be willing to follow God wherever he may lead. And, and that, that might mean some very hard decisions for people, but we need to be willing to do that and also willing to see the problem. If we, if we, if we continually uh, blind to it and say, oh, actually, it's not that bad, we'll carry on doing our little, we'll do our alpha courses every year and mm. we'll do our tea and coffee after the meeting and we'll, we'll do our, our kind of, whether it's a hymn sandwich or whether it's a nice, you know, um, Bethany type worship, whatever the kind of thing that the the way that the standard works, are the sermons that are all sound roughly the same, that end and conclude roughly the same. Um, what do we think this? Because some of these things are traditions that have come in that are not just straight out of the pages of scripture. We need to be open to talking in a way that is more akin to the foundations that we're supposed to be built upon. Yeah, and I totally agree. I mean, I mean, for me, I mean, an overhead projector is the key answer for um, for reformational success. I think, but but Amen. yeah, Amen. I, but yeah. I mean, thanks for showing that because I think it also draws attention to. I mean, your test testimony to this that 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 there is a cost to mm. to to a church saying actually we are going to stand on the truth of God's word. We, we're not looking for trouble, but we 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 accept that taking a stand may may bring mm. hardship and challenge and and we have to be mm. again i think we have to be prepared for that as 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 yeah. believers and um mm. I, I think i'm struck often by the fact that i think you know a church that is growing can be a sign of of god's blessing on it mm. which is mm. amazing but also sometimes it might not be it, 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 that that can be a, a misleading metric mm. to use, mm. and and mm. I think if the church growth accompanies a, a biblical orthodoxy, a shameless shameless approach to mm. holding up God's word, then praise yeah. the Lord, brilliant. But it, but if that biblical sound, solid foundation isn't there, then mm. we've got to ask some serious serious mm. questions. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one one of the things that we've been um, really keen to also chat with you about, Aaron, is mm. the the whole thing of um, cowardice in 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 the the church and and mm -hmm. how we can mm -hmm. how we can a recognise that and b sort of tackle it. And one one of uh, the your recent articles on on your Substack, and we'll link to all this in, in the podcast notes. Mm -hmm. um, was called, you know, why churches not dying on hills will die. And uh, in, in the article, we talk about battle avoidant Christianity has become the norm for most churches in in mm. in the West, and mm. that that is so key. But how how can we how can we avoid that danger? Because there'll be people listening to to this podcast, some some of who lead a church, but. A lot of people will be in churches where they want to try and affect change. So, I guess understanding a little bit of how we can how we can avoid this this danger of, um, yeah, mm. choosing mm. the hills, as it were. Yeah, I, I, some of the, some of this I would say is I wouldn't say it's unique to Britain, but there's a some British version of it. There's a British version of cowardice, which is. <clears throat> crept in and, and become part of the national character, the sort of sense that we don't want to offend people. Like it's a, it could be a throwback to our sort of uh, imperial aristocratic past maybe of, of keeping polite manners. And mm -hmm. so there's a, there can be, it's good to have good manners. Yeah, you don't want to be rough and uh, roughshod with people in a way that's 
that's unkind or imposing on them or something. And so we, we like to kind of keep controversy away. We like to deal with things maybe bureaucratically. Often that often ends up happening. People resolve conflicts <clears throat> by changing the system around rather than going up to a person directly and challenging them. And I, and I think that's part of it. That's just a kind of cultural issue, I think, that's probably crept into the church in many ways without people realising. They think it's actually them being loving. But to go back to Helen's point earlier about loving your neighbour, um, and actually because I'm loving this person by you know, not making a deal of this. And actually, it's probably more cowardice. It's probably because it's really difficult to do that. And once you challenge that person, you're going to have to face the consequences of what they might say back to you or, or disagree with you, or it might impair your friendship. And you'd rather keep the peace. Um, mm -hmm. A little bit like, you know, Neville Chamberlain with um, Hitler in, in 1938 in the Munich Agreement, and he comes back, we've achieved peace in our time. That's a very British thing to do, to go, to go say, go, go and like, Go and have dinner with the wolves and say, you know, I gave them some, I gave them a bit of Czechoslovakia and they were fine. They said they're not <laughs> going to come back for any more. It's absolutely fine. Oh no, they've invaded Poland. What, what the, who, who saw that happening? Um, and I think that this is just the same kind of thing that we've got. And, and there was the voices like the Churchill at the time to go, well, no, you, this isn't going to happen. You can't do business with with these guys, um, and you you need to prepare for war. Not that we want war to happen, mm. and everyone's desperate to avoid it. And and it's good to that's an understandable instinct. Um, but it we don't want to kind of combat all the time. But I I still get lots of Christians who don't like the fact that I'm emphasising a combative Christianity. It's not because we want to fight all the time and just get into skirmishes because you just just for the love of the fight. But it's because you it's necessary and it's part of what it means to be a church on mission. And to yeah. be a church involved in a spiritual war all the time, but always in a war. So it's actually there is no though we're called to live peaceful and quiet lives by Paul in the in the in the epistles. It's precisely why he says that whether it's one Thessalonians or one of the pastoral epistles. But anyway, he um that there's a um a sense in which that notion of living the peaceful life off to the side, it it's so appealing because it's like the kind of yeah, to use a a sort of Tolkienian analogy. It's like Bilbo in Bag End. He wants he wants to stay there. He wants to sit in his armchair. Mm. Um, and and it's actually Gandalf encouraging him. Look, there's something more in you. You're actually you've got your took as well. There's a part <laughs> of you that actually needs to come out and come out and embrace the adventure. As a Christian, you are on an adventure. You are part of a great mission, the greatest mission ever. And it's a wonderful, glorious thing. But so many of us have really um, sort of comatose ourselves uh, to, to want to sort of live this sleepier, drearier life where we just kind of get through it and we just survive and we just sort of keep going and make sure that we do the right thing all the time, which is good. Don't, don't, you know, you shouldn't go and sin. You shouldn't go and be unholy in any way. But we sort of live this very faithless life that doesn't require faith very, very much, doesn't take any risks, doesn't do anything that sort of expects you know, attempts great things for God, as a you know, great missionary once said. And I think um, we expect great things from God as well, as the other part of that. So we, we expect God to act because we know the kind of God that we worship and follow. And so I think that the problem of the cowardice creeps in because we've just got this view that just sort of wants to keep things safe, wants to keep things on the down low. And that means we don't come out to fight on these issues that might get us in trouble, that might affect the repute of the institution or the church or the charity, whatever it is. So in my own situation, yeah, that was that I was fired for bringing the college into disrepute before certain people. 
um, that they wanted to impress and they wanted to keep their repute with, but they didn't realize that that is ultimately a greater repute that they lost with yeah. those faithful evangelicals around the world who would say, oh, okay, can't trust these guys anymore because they're not willing to stand on uh, on the word. But they've got their repute with the purse string holders and, and other people. And I think this is the issue we have. Lots of churches have that, even down to the fact that we've, we've all got, you know, we, we get that lovely gift aid bonus every mm. year. Um, mm. which means we have to be a part of the charity commission. Now, that's a good thing in mm. many ways, but increasingly every year, the bureaucracy of that ramps up and the way in yep. which, yep. at what point, and I said this to my students for many years, at what point, you know, lots of them, ch many church leaders and mission organization leaders, and I'd say, can you imagine your budget without gift aid? Because you're going to have to probably at some point in your lifetime. Because at some point you can see the direction of travel and you can see the way in which... Um, Christian morality is no longer seen as charitable. So if I can be fired for saying homosexuality is invading the church, I'll be deemed as someone who's not a charitable person, as a charitable, nice, loving person would never say that, apparently. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. how that's how Christian morality is seen. Um I think we, we've heard people refer to, you know, I think it was a survey of eighteen to thirty-four year olds where over half, a majority of them see the Bible as hate speech. Mm. and that's the next generation that's the coming generation so what if some of those people get into politics some of them already are in politics now um, and they're influencing the culture so why would the government give you <laughs> extra money for being uncharitable why would they allow you to be a charity that, that, that will come eventually there's, there's lots of reasons why that hasn't actually happened yet because the churches are doing so much social care that the government can't really do without them but at the same time, be, the things may happen. Things may just, plates may move in the future, and churches need to be willing to be called bad and shameful by the, the darkness, because that's again what what we're what that, that's what we're we're told will happen. That's what happened to Jesus himself. How can the Son of God, the most holy, only truly holy man who ever lived, um, be seen as shameful? Be publicly shamed. I mean, that's the one we follow. That's that's literally what Christianity is. We follow in the wake of the one who's unfairly maligned as being as though he's in the darkness and he's actually mm. the one who's in the light, as though he was a liar when he's the, the, the epitome of the truth. Um, I think Christians need to embrace that. So there's going to be a time of challenge for that and, and we're going to come up against significant problems in culture. So we have to be willing, to, again, like I said earlier, to take that more aggressive posture and, and meet meet our enemies uh, in the field um, at times. And it doesn't always mean you have to go through it. Not everyone has to do that. There are different giftings and roles in the church. It would be silly if everyone ran to the front line and started fighting the orcs. I don't know who the orcs are in this analogy, <laughs> by the way. Don't, don't go and write in and tell Tim that I called a load of people orcs. <laughs> but um, <laughs> sticking with the Tolkien vibe. Um, so I, I, I just think we need to, like, be willing to do that and, and the whole thing about dying on hills has just been for years in the church it's it's always been something that's made me uncomfortable as i've seen something in the bible that seems to be really important like gender for example the amount that the male female distinctiveness comes up and it matters as a key theological theme throughout the old and new testament really really important but we get into this weird place as evangelicals where we say well in the closed hand we've got the trinity we've got Christology, who Jesus is, we've got, you know, the Holy Spirit, we've got all these kind of fundamental doctrines that the church is, is, um, would call orthodox, 
Mm-hmm. And then in the other open hand, we've got all these sort of socio-political issues. We've got cultural issues and ethical issues. Well, what do you think about abortion? Well, it doesn't matter. It's not going to affect your salvation if you allow babies to die or if you don't challenge the fact that babies are being murdered or if, you, if you're an egalitarian, it doesn't really matter. If you like women pastors because you've met so many nice women pastors and you feel bad to tell them that um, it doesn't seem what they're, you know, that they're in line with what the Bible's saying, that, and that's a hard thing to do, and, I, and I've had to, uh, students like mm. that before, and, and I want to try and encourage them as Christians, even if I personally can't affirm their calling. And so yeah. there's all these challenging issues. You go, oh, this is the open-handed issue. It's just a, an up for debate. Let's just debate it endlessly. I've always found that uncomfortable because it it's something that's really important to stand on biblically, and it will erode biblical authority yeah. if you keep making these things open for debate, which actually aren't debatable. Like, I don't think abortion is debatable biblically it's, it's shocking to me when i hear christians say mm. such a very complex nuanced issue and we, we're not quite sure what we think about it look that, that's that's just not like if abortion gets abolished those same people in another generation will be saying oh yeah i can't believe people used to think abortion was okay how terrible mm. they, they'll mm. just, like mm. we do with slavery they'll, they'll just this is just the way it goes people join with the, the kind of crowd and i think that's that's what christians ought to not do we ought to have an immunity to crowd think because we're following the one who was who stood against the crowd quite profoundly. And by that, I just mean the, the kind of worldly crowd, of course, in a way that the church becomes a congregation, which is different to just a mob that's kind of, right, what, what, what's the latest thing we're supposed to think? Oh, okay, we'll go along with that. Um, yeah, so we, so we don't come out to fight on these hills and we sort of keep our powder dry, keep ourselves out of the fray. And we the biggest kind of challenge I would have to churches that do that would be, you know, you're kidding yourselves if you think that um, you're going to come and die on the right hill at the right time. Um, it's just, it, it, it really is kidding yourself because you haven't even fostered something within yourself or within the congregation that you're willing to fight. Because then you can be willing to say, I'm not going to fight. If you're willing to fight, then you can put down your sword and say, not today or not on this issue, or I'm going to be prudent and decide that this isn't, the right moment if you're constantly in the posture of saying my sword is gathering dust on the mantelpiece because i never use it i'll only bring it out when someone comes and attacks the trinity or something <laughs> which no one no one in culture cares about the trinity they don't they don't talk about that at all they're only going to just a convenient way of you ensuring that you never have to fight on any issues because you've made this weird evangelical doctrine that says we're going to guard the gospel by not talking about socio-cultural political issues because um, they're all up for debate. And if you talk about them too much, you might disparage the gospel or distract from the gospel. I think that's a real misunderstanding of, of the gospel. Remembering, of course, that the New Testament, more, more often than not, refers to the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. Mm. So what on earth does that mean? The gospel of the kingdom. That's the kingdom of God, which means everything that it means to be under the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming the fullness of what of who God is and what it means to follow him as well. So of course it's the good news of our salvation. And that's our entry into it but we enter the kingdom of god we come into the kingdom of god which which does have all of these norms and laws and things like that and and, and ways of being now of course you can get christians who become legalistic about that and they they will basically lead with the fact that you have to tick all of these sort of boxes and live your life in this particular way um that can that can disparage the gospel but i don't see that as the issue that we're facing i see that the issue is we have a a gospel that's been defanged and shorn of all of its um, sharpness, basically, in, in order to protect ourselves from the the um, the allegations or the charge of controversy, which is something that we need to 
to die to. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you think, Aaron, on that issue of courage in the church? Um, I was thinking while you were talking that there's just, you know, these last few years with COVID, um, we've mm. not really seen much courage from much of the church, and actually we saw a lot of compliance. And and for me, mm. that was a big test for the church, and it mm. failed miserably in my eyes. Mm. Mm. I think so. Yeah, I, I, I actually was, um, I was, at the time, very skeptical of the COVID stuff. But I would have been on the side at the time, of going, "Well, there's so many other battles to fight. Don't know enough about it. Everyone seems to be so hot up about it. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was difficult to challenge publicly. So I think I was more on the fence in publicly challenging it, which, which might be my own cowardice." Um, and and in my own church, even we clo- the church closed, and everyone's wearing masks. So I I I got I didn't wear a mask um, when I thought it was when I didn't have to. In fact, virtually didn't ever wear a mask. I think I got out of it though because I got asthma, so I could say I'm exempt. This <laughs> is mm-hmm. one of those. But I th- I remember, and I remember seeing people in the states saying this mask thing is a is a is a hill to die on. And it took me a while to realise that it that it really was because it was coming through this whole do what you're told mm. kind of thing. Um, and it, it was, it's hard because, we, so again, it, we, we trust the experts. Uh, I've read, mm. read a, a review a book by Joe Boot recently, or last week, called Ruler of Kings, where he's talking about the, you know, the, the, the cult of the expert mm. in yeah. modern West. Oh, yes, yeah. And so there's this notion of, like, you just don't know. So, so it comes even to stuff like uh, geology and things like that, like when we talk about, what, you know how old the earth is that kind of thing whatever people believe that like that could be for some a very much a debatable issue no one knows enough about it who's who's got time to really challenge any experts and stuff so you're just going to give way to whatever the latest scientific consensus of something is mm. um similarly with covid it's like well this is the scientific consensus all of these super experts are here on the news all the time reminding you that you don't know you need to just follow what they their advice is so, and you'd think that would be sound advice but in, in a very ideologically infiltrated time, I think it's appropriate to not trust the experts. And and certainly the, the vaccine thing was just quite obvious very early on, for example, that you saw even scientific data, people challenging it, mm. Um, mm. and you know, footballers dying and things like that. And mm. it was, I, I can remember there's a, a preacher in Scotland who might have been the only British voice I heard publicly speaking against the vaccines at a time when it was... Uh, not cool to do so now i think it's kind of come cool so we can all talk about it publicly i think at the time i was really skeptical of the lockdown stuff so that was a, it's easier even though it's easier to be skeptical of lockdown stuff during covid because and i challenged it then to say you know i think we've done a podcast we might have done an episode to say it's ludicrous that the church so quickly does what the government wants it to do and and if you challenge that you're you get the romans 13 brigade come out and say mm. You have to obey the authorities yeah. at all times, whatever they say. Anything you just don't you don't even believe that. There's no way you actually believe that. Otherwise, you'd be a Nazi in in uh, the 1930s Germany and just doing whatever the Nazis said. And it was the confessing church that had to say, for the sake of the word of God, who that, that should that that, it, that governs the authority of any government. Um, ultimately, even whether they recognise it or not, they are God's servant carrying out His justice. Mm. Um, Therefore, you, they don't get to assert themselves over the word of God, and you can challenge tyrannical leadership and authority. And I think it was 
a form of tyranny um, that the government required us to uh, to shut churches. And of course, there's the whole debate about whether it's just guidance anyway. But the Church of England even stayed closed, I believe, for a time when they didn't have to. Um, and Justin Welby then had to come out and apologise, and they were a little bit too cautious. But again, it's it is it's it's really it tells you a lot about the, the state of a church of the church at large, how how easily and how willing we are to do what we're told. And I think this is something that I see is I can't but see that connected to the fact that we also do what we're told when we're, when when it comes to these other ethical issues that come in, like what we're supposed yeah. to say and not say on these things. So yeah. it, it, for me, for many, many, many would just take a sort of sensible sounding option and go, no, 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 no we just did, we just did that because that's you know you don't want to break the law, you don't want to, you don't want, you want to be above reproach and all these sensible sounding things, of course. But I think actually it's related to these other things because because you're not really wanting to get in trouble for anything, and I think you have to be willing to get in trouble because that's to be a Christian it isn't to seek trouble, it's not to be a troublemaker on purpose. But the, Jesus and the apostles caused a heck of a lot of trouble. Um, to the authorities of their day, and they were willing to do that. So like I said earlier, if you are willing to be in trouble, um, then you can make the right choice to choose not to be um, getting yourself into the wrong kinds of controversy. There are bad kinds of trouble that you need to avoid. The Proverbs are very clear on that. Um, and you don't want to bring the gospel into disrepute. At the yeah. same time, most of the people who wrote the New Testament uh, spent time in prison or, or mm. being flogged before the authorities of their day. And I think a lot of Christians today, because we've had this vestige of Christendom where we used to have a lot more clout uh, culturally, it was probably, there might be a sort of weird remnantal memory of the culture is broadly Christian and moral. And therefore, to be out of repute, to be in disrepute with the culture is almost to be in disrepute with Christian society. Mm. So it's a sort of, yeah, that's not the case anymore. To be in disrepute with this society might actually be a badge of honour and, and faithfulness to God, because His kingdom is not in in sync with the current culture. And it's not even necessarily that it was massively in sync fifty years ago or something. And mm. um, but it's just that we can see a shift, and it's a more explicitly anti-Christian moment we're living in. So to be in disrepute for the right reasons. Um, with some of those, um, yeah, societal trends is, is may not be a bad thing. Maybe, but it may not be. I, I think. I think. I think. Yeah, that that's that's really that's really good. I mean, you touched on something earlier, which um, is just worth mentioning again, which is like you know, that the, uh, for a lot of churches they are charities. There, uh-huh. and um, there's lots of good reasons for that, but I think there's also a kind of a Trojan horse element of of this, mm. which has seeped into the church, and we saw that outworked in in the COVID thing because a lot of churches now, if they're charities or especially if they're CIOs, they'll have trustees, and mm. we see trustees actually take ownership of the leadership of the church, mm. and that yeah. that came at odds with. Like a biblical model of church leadership, which should normally be mm. be elders, for example, and yeah. I, I think it caused mm. all sorts of issues. I certainly, certainly mm. in, in in my church at the time time it did. Um, mm. I, when mm. when I was mm. actually an elder, uh, and mm. I remember getting mm. a getting getting my knuckles wrapped for for not right, wearing right. not wearing a, a face mask in in church. <laughs> Uh, because yeah, I thought I'm not yeah. I'm not doing this. I want to I want to actually you know yeah. set an example to other people. Yes, as yeah. an elder that that this is yeah. nonsense. And um, yeah. but yeah. but but we were so far away from from that. We just basically 
kowtow to to the yeah. to the to the cultural norms and i and i think that, it's, that, it's seeped yeah. in so much to the it's it's so now ingrained in church mm. leadership mm. It, it needs sorting out really yeah, yeah. that's um, it's good that you did that i mean that's i i remember being at a uh, yeah a meeting as maybe the only person without a mask and and <laughs> arguably the argument could then be well it's fine isn't it you, you guys well, have yeah. masks if, uh, if you, you believe know, in it you, everybody's good <laughs> everything's fine <laughs> yeah. the crazies can all affect each other it's fine but yeah and, and so there are absolutely like those sort of, those sort of stands it just seem like so insignificant because people could always come to you and say well you're not being biblical it doesn't mm. say anywhere yeah. that you this, this is just a silly little thing it, it, I was um, told to actually, love to love my neighbour you know the exactly. effect it was like what? <laughs> and also, like, what if you murder someone? What if you're murdering someone by doing it? Just yeah, like the madness yeah, yeah. with which we were. It was a genuinely like a mad time, and people reflecting on it now, they acting like it didn't. It wasn't quite as bad as that. It's like it really yeah. was. It was it, like yeah, it was. It was terrible. And, yeah. And if you weren't, if you didn't, you know, if you had challenges on on the vaccine as well, things like that, it was like you were just an immoral person. Yeah. Um. Who who were who was just horrible and wanted people to die, and you just think. It's it was strange how quickly people kind of fell into that. So that all of those dystopian novels that we spent loads mm. of time writing and reading in the 20th century about totalitarian regimes on the right, generally thinking mm. of the likes of uh, well, actually I guess arguably the far left, all right, but the weird mix of what what the um, Soviet Union was, but also Nazi Germany, and, and you think so many novels were spawned to remind ourselves that we care about individual freedom rather than becoming part of the mass, and that's almost been a huge part of what the western story has been we care about individual rights and freedom we hate the idea of the individual being squashed and that's actually madly why things like the transgenders so big because it's like you you don't squash this individual person they get to say what they are who they are you don't get to tell them because that so you can see the logic of that like we care about individual expression of freedom but it's just not it's not playing um it's not in a just way it's not actually Playing by its own rules, it's it's there's something wrong going on here. These dice, mm. the dice are sort of the deck is stacked as it was. It's not there's something uh, or the dice loaded. It's not it's something that uh, we we haven't really been alert to to say that actually people are trying to pick and choose when they want to focus on individual freedom and when they want to say just toe toe the line and do the sensible thing. And as you say, churches more often than not trustees. Uh, the bureaucracy ends up kind of controlling the, the, yeah, the kind of it does. Yeah. Yeah, leading the way, and that, that's lots of churches. Actually, they had a probably maybe maybe it called out the fact that churches were probably, I think churches that were biblically in leadership, they would tolerate they have a trustee board in order to be a charity commission. Past that, and that's probably a weird um, thing that might be me looking into at some point. I don't know as, as to whether there are some churches that said, look, the trustees know that they're not in, they're not really leading the church. But as far as the government's concerned, they sort of are in gov. They're in governance yes, over exactly. elders, yeah. and so there's a strange sort of disconnect there. Like, is that are you lying? Are you lying to the government? <laughs> because ultimately, the trustees don't really get to say. But then, as you say, some churches that absolutely did happen, and there's probably some thinking to be done for churches as to how they navigate that issue going forward. I would say. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Hmm. Just um, I, I'm aware of time. Um, just wanted to touch briefly on um an another recent article that you, where you talk about outrageous grace um mm. and you say that outrageous grace is a term used by progressives when they want to redefine their sin 
evangelicals have made the gospel sound like it's God's love winning against God's judgment. Mm. So what, why do you think we're so seemingly so unwilling to confront our sin? And that probably links back to, you know, that your tweet that we talked about at the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, do you mean as in why are we as a church so unwilling, or why are we unwilling to confront other sins? Um, well, I think I think both really. Um, but mm -hmm. the the notion of sin we talk about probably so little, um, mm -hmm. and and then actually confronting sin um, mm -hmm. has has been something that I think we're often cowardly and and don't don't mm -hmm. want to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's right. I think. It's it's hard because I don't actually want to constantly only be talking about sin, but I think mm. it's a certain you 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 end up needing to speak about what need what comes up and, and what needs to be focused on at that time. And I think I often you, you may know the well the well quoted Luther quote um, on on your if you're defending the gospel at every point except the one point that's being attacked in your generation, then you're actually um, not defending it. You're denying the gospel because. You're allowing it to be attacked at this point at, the, at its weak spot and i think this would be a real weak spot for uh the church arguably especially for the evangelical church but it does affect all all groupings not only within protestantism but you know, there's the same thing happens in the roman catholic church in other ways but within evangelicals because we are focused on the gospel at the front end we want to accentuate the good news the fact that people are forgiven and that god loves everyone mm. um and now to get into debates over Calvinism, Arminianism. Does God love everyone? I mean, Esau I have hated, says. Um, but that's a whole other the hell of a debate. But like the way that we express it, yes, we should say we offer God's love to everyone because God is love. And we are to be loving. And so we do need to accentuate that. That is what the gospel is offering to people. Um, and so in doing that, we sometimes over accentuate um, the way in which God forgives us in the gospel. And so this recent article I've written was in relation to Jane Ozan, of course, a LGBT uh, activist to the government, advisor on LGBT issues to the government at one time, and then she sort of spat a dummy out and said <laughs> that the government was all, I think she said the government, uh, yeah, that was it, the government only listens to right-wing evangelicals. I was like, if only. We would live, be living in a very different place, wouldn't we, Jane? So, so she then also left her, her job, uh, her role at the Anglican Synod, similar issues, even though it would seem like that it's moving in her direction, ultimately, it's probably not moving as fast as she'd like it to. And so um, she's emphasising constantly this notion that God's love is so outrageous, the gospel is so gracious, um, that we should, that God would overlook uh, sin. And so, because we don't really want to endlessly talk about people's sins and look like Pharisees, because that's what we've been telling ourselves, the worst imaginable thing would be to some of someone to call you a moralist or a Pharisee. I think, arguably, the Gospel Coalition, massive um, resource center and kind of organization in the US, which has influenced evangelicals hugely, which has done lots of good stuff, Arguably, they've been culpable for this because they've um, they've been challenging moralism so much that it's almost like morality doesn't matter. Um, and they would never say that. They'd never come out and actually say that. But the emphases have always been, how can we focus on the fact that actually it's all about grace, actually it's about the love of God in the end anyway. And so that kind of overwhelms any issues you might have about sin. As though, as though God doesn't really care that much about sin and, and he 
sometimes I like to almost picture it as though God repents of his judgmental phase in his life. And so the Old Testament was this notion of God coming of age. He used to be a moody teenager who used mm. to take his wrath out. And now he's like, oh, I'm really, I'm really over that now. I've kind of come into the twilight of my years and I'm, I'm on medication now, actually. I've got Prozac. <laughs> I'm really relaxed and it's just really fine. I love everyone. And that's like how we've actually, the songs we sometimes sing mm. um, and, and the way that we depict God. It's like he's just this granddaddy in the sky who just thinks everything is great. Um, and then there's a sort of new covenant way that you could express that and say, yes, there's a reason he used to be wrathful against sin. And now he's not because um, he's poured all his wrath out on his son. So even mm. good evangelicals who hold to penal substitution can say that and sing in Christ alone. The wrath of God was satisfied. You know, that was a line. That was a song that my friends and I, when I was when we were as you know, evangelicals at university a couple of decades ago, we'd have to defend that song against liberals who would want to take that line out, which said, mm. the wrath of God is satisfied. The mm. wrath of God. They would change it to like, our old selves too were crucified or something, you know, uh, okay. quite vague. So they'd want to say, because they didn't want the idea that God ever had wrath. No. So the wrath of God was satisfied was a problem. So we were like, we would sing that line especially loudly in, in chapel services or something, if the people <laughs> who, who we knew wanted to uh, uh, take that line out. Um, and often when that song was played at a public event, it, they, they, someone would do something with that line. They just didn't like the idea of the wrath of God even being in there. I've strangely come around, and I love that song. My, I sing that to my children regularly. It's a wonderful song by Stuart Townend. And um, it, that line, um, I would even maybe have issues with that line from the other side because, of course, the wrath of God is satisfied in relation to our sin on the cross because Jesus takes our sin. But it makes people sometimes think that. God is no longer wrathful, angry against sin. Mm. So it's like on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. He doesn't have any wrath anymore. Yeah, That isn't actually the case. It's not actually true that he doesn't have wrath against sin and won't enact judgment upon sin because it all was poured out on his side. There will be a day of judgment, obviously. We see Revelation, we see Jesus in Revelation 21, putting, uh, you know, uh, sending people to the lake of fire. That just doesn't fit with our nice, winsome, Gracie mm. evangelicalism. It's like, what do you what do you do with that? Do you, do you seem to stop? Are you going to be embarrassed about that bit as well? Because that's Jesus. So you can't even do your weird pseudo liberal thing of going. Well, I just focus on Jesus. Like when Paul says something a bit weird, I just think that's contextual. Let's just go back to Jesus. So let's go, okay, let's just go back to Jesus then. Let's just deal with Jesus and see see what 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 we get with it. Because he's the one who spoke about hell more than anything else. And that's yeah. New Testament, isn't it? That's not old old style teenager God. If you're in your weird Marcy Night way, this is actually. Um, the new covenant. So even with the cross, even with the fact that God's wrath for our sin is poured out upon his son, that we may not face it if we are in him, which is the, the centrality of what the gospel is, <clears throat> there is still judgment. Herod is eaten by worms. Ananias and Sapphira are struck down. And there is judgment to come. And, and warnings of judgment, Steve, even so in the epistles as well. So it's a bit misleading to assume that in the land of grace, as it were, God doesn't seem to care about that. And I say that as someone who's a, from a New Frontiers background, who's more substantially influenced by Terry Virgo, probably theologically, than any other preacher, I would, have said, I would say. Um, and so his message of grace is absolutely what I would hold. It's not his message, it's just the Bible's message of grace. Yes, it's just, yeah. one of these voices who recovered it especially strongly. And I think a lot of people like to hear the idea of grace and it gets them off the hook. Because then you can say, oh, let's just be nice and gracious. And it kind of means... You don't need to care about what you do. There's an antinomianism that can come in. 
Um, and God doesn't care that much about what you do because it's all it's all it's all been done. There's nothing for you to do. Which of course that is sort of true in some respects if you, if you're dealing with a legalist who thinks they have to impress God by what they do. But ultimately, that the grace of God should free us um, to the works of righteousness, righteousness which we are kind of called to, which He even planned for us to do, as Paul says in in Ephesians. And so, um, yeah. So I think that the notion of grace, overemphasized in the, some of those ways I've described there, means that we would never highlights someone's sin and it's an easy way to do so it's easy for a liberal to emphasize that and then um we've already prepped for it because we kind of think oh yeah god's grace is so outrageous and i think one of the things i said in my article is that we use these adjectives all the time in our songs and stuff to to emphasize it in such a way that it seems like it, it overwhelms any challenge from the other side um and any challenge um that would come against it, the, the, the outrageousness of grace would just overwhelm all these previous categories. And really, it's actually quite a postmodern thing. It's like undermining the foundations. And it, and it, it appeals to our sensibilities to want to say it's outrageous because it sounds very journalistically winsome. Um, and we've probably been preaching the gospel askew for many years, I think. And that's sort of only come to light um, in, in more recent times as we've had these other new challenges and we've not really adapted to them very well. Yeah, uh, I think yeah that that is so such so, so the case isn't it and kind of linking in with this to kind of bring this into into land a bit now but i think i was reminded of this um a few days ago and it was from one of your uh, tweets where you, where um you'd commented on something that john stevens had said uh, so if you don't for those of you who don't know john stevens mm-hmm. is the national director of the fiec which is a fellowship of evangelical independent churches and uh, he john stevens was was commenting on on some ad- advice that alistair Begg, who's who's a pastor and an author gave where he he that's alistair Begg, encouraged a grandmother um presumably in his church to to attend her grandson's transgender wedding so John Stevens tweeted out, he said, personally, I agree with Alistair Begg's advice. Jesus ate with sinners without compromising. Paul did not forbid associating with them all unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 5 verses 9 to 11. Our congregation members will face more challenges like this in post-Christian society. Um, just read out what Joe Boots says because it was uh, characters, characteristically to the point <laughs> and quite funny. He said, uh, marvellous counsel. And this was in replying to John Stevens. Uh, but believers in pre-Christian uh, Europe celebrated sin so to win their society. Augustine joined in ancient pride parades. The early church winked at abortion. If two sodomites were getting married in Cana, Jesus would have sourced the wine list. Um, <laughs> but, but, Sounds like Joe. Yeah. 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 But I mean, you did, you did a, a, a long... Uh, a tweet in response to this, which was which was really really good. Um, but I guess, um, uh, yeah, this is this is a, a worrying thing in a sense. It's only mm. a small thing, but but here mm. we have you know in John Stevens' case, national director of of the F- FIEC, which is is normally regarded as kind of conservative evangelical, although I'm, I'm less sure yeah. what evangelical means in modern day parlance, yes. if I'm honest at the moment. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but I think I was struck by one, one kind of, you know, thought I would hold lightly, I'll be honest, but, but, mm. you know, I'd ask myself, well, what's the difference between John Stevens tweet and your tweet that cost you your job, you know? So, so here <laughs> yeah. we have one person who's upholding biblical orthodoxy and mm. the other person 
eroding it. And mm. both tweets are from personal accounts. Um, yeah. But they point, yeah, point. they point to, um, I think what what's going going on really. And mm. and and I guess mm. I, I the question I'd ask is, you know, what what does it say when you know the national director of a like I said traditionally conservative church organisation like the FIEC does not appear to mm. uphold straightforward theology. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I, I um, I guess I, I um, I, I'm not hugely a fan of calling calling to resign and Joe Joe did his um, in his uh, thing only because it's happened to me. And I remember being like, some of these people don't even know me and they don't know um, the situation, so they jump yeah, up with the people yeah. calls for, you know for me to be fired by tweet. So I, I tend to like not get involved in that so much but I, I absolutely think it needs to be called out and, and other people maybe need to think about it so it, it, I maybe I'm being you know inconsistent because I'm still jumping on the bandwagon but I don't I think it's actually a really important thing to proclaim the truth and to call out leaders when they're in error and so maybe people thought that I was in error on the left from the left and that they would say we need to call you out because you're being homophobic or whatever because we think that's homophobic which it isn't um so, but it, it, it kind of it, it fosters that kind of debate with John Stevens. I think he's got a history now of this compliance thing of saying mm. the right thing. Yeah, in COVID, he was all, you know oh, he yeah. was right down the yeah, line. Yeah. He, he was, was. He, and it frustrated many people. And it was this is where people started to see the issues. It's like, oh, okay, there's some problems here, aren't there? Um, I'm not quite sure if I've heard him speak. I think I had I heard one or two things that on the critical race theory thing, not like ever. Never fully endorsing it, stuff that's problematic, but just like little open windows to like, oh, this sort of a strange logic or, mm. or a strange way of phrasing it. But it probably comes back off, you know, Helen's question on the outrageous grace um, issue. The way that we've talked about being gospel, loving a neighbor as well, the loving neighbor winsomeness thing. That's what Alistair Begg is talking about. In a way, it's not. Like you can't, you, you can see the connection Alistair Begg's making. You can see why he's saying that because he's got this focus on like, mm. wouldn't it be good to yeah, yeah. focus on the gospel? Um, we've actually got a draft uh, article coming out soon on on this whole issue, and it's like, I, 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 you can see what the cogs are turning for him, and he's like, look, as long as they know that you're, uh, you don't affirm their lifestyle, you need to go, and you, need to, you need to buy a gift. I think that's the thing that really misunderstands. It could be a generational issue of the kind of battles these leaders of a different generation were fighting. Um, or, or the, the 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 kind of posture that they've inherited from others, um, and so in in that sense that they've they think that this is the, the battleground. They think that actually to fight for the gospel is to is to make sure that we're always being and showing that posture of, of niceness and lovingness and not coming across like a Pharisee. I think one of the things Alistair Begg said actually was, wouldn't it be you know being thought of as judgmental or condemnatory or like we, we we couldn't countenance anything, and I think that's where, um, yeah, where the problem lies today. That we've got you know that the leader of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches who still who thinks that that's fine, who doesn't see that this is an issue. And I think what's really telling the thing that Joe Boot obviously picked up on, which I totally agree with, the notion that um, in a post-Christian society we're going to be seeing more of these cases. Therefore, we should adopt this kind of posture is absolutely crazy because it suggests that because more of these things are going to happen, we ought to move more towards it in that way of, of a more affirmative posture 
I don't know why, why would it, if there's more of these things happening, wouldn't that be more of an opportunity to speak against some of these mm. things mm. and to show a more radical kind of love, a more paradoxical kind of love, even if it's a love that isn't received as love. So, so in my case, I know I, <laughs> the old cliche, not quite some of my best friends are gay, but like, obviously I've interacted with lots of people who are gay and even some who are, who are, um, you know, who aren't quite sure or who are Christians and, 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 and sort of struggling with it, and as well as all the way across to the sort of brazen uh, pro-LGBT types. Um, and I think you can show a more paradoxical love by being genuinely loving and caring for that person whilst mm. maintaining a very strong stance against them. That will probably confuse them, and they'll say, well, that can't. it must be the case that that person's being fake with me when they're being loving and they hold again. Uh, you know, they really secretly think I'm some kind of demon. And ironically, you get then demonised for that. I, I think we've got to be willing to properly embrace the biblical ethic of 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 love, not just tough love, which might be involved in the sense of like saying things that people are going to find difficult and it will be for their good. Um, but that full orb sense in which your you, your love will go beyond the expectations of the crowd. And and what they how they've defined how you, how you need to act in love. So if the gay couple at a wedding say, if you don't come to our wedding and buy us a gift, it means you don't love us and you're shunning us as some terrible person. Um, you you've got to show them that that's not the case. You're not not loving them. There are things to to say. There there is persuasion that can happen. But ultimately, you also have to be willing to die to that. And, and that should be a hill you die on because you cannot partake in something which um, is directly dishonouring to God. And that's what, if you buy a gift, for, if you go to a gay wedding, I think I've even had family members who've had gay friends who've had to wrestle with this question in the past. And it's really, it's a really hard one. I know that it's hard because you've got close friends that you've been friends. You might have grown up with someone from school and you've been friends with them your whole life and suddenly to seem like, oh gosh, you're this kind of, I thought you were kind of a cool religious person. I thought you were one of those evangelicals who's really nice and <laughs> loving. And, and you've yeah. got to then go, yeah. oh. Maybe I'm worse than you thought I was, but I, I actually, if you think I'm bad, I'm not going to change what I believe because you, you're going to think I'm bad for it. That's the weird confusion we're in as evangelicals in our day. We sort of think that that's a bad witness, and I actually think that a good, it can be just as good a witness to tell to tell that couple and have them slander you throughout that whole wedding and say what a terrible bigot that person is. Who's to say that that is not going to turn into a good witness for the gospel? Some of those people might be convicted and come to Christ. I, I, I doubt that many people, I mean, you might have some, some people might be convicted if you went to the wedding, yeah, and say, oh, well, they were still loving even though they disagreed with me. That's what Alistair Begg's trying to say. That's what John Stevens is trying to say. I just disagree that that's the, even the best witness, let alone the faithful witness, because you're, you are subtly, no, not even subtly, you're overtly trying to sanctify something that cannot be sanctified. Um, by your presence there and yeah. by your participation, yeah. you're participating in it. So it's like saying, hey, Jesus hung out with prostitutes um, and the Pharisees didn't like that. And they'd say, oh, you shouldn't be doing this. But Jesus didn't like go to brothels. He mm -hmm. didn't um, He didn't um, count the money with the money lenders outside the temple. Go, hey, I'm just, re I want to reach you winsomely. Please can you not do this stuff outside the temple? He, he gets his whip of cords and he drives them out. And that, that there's, there's a different posture that Jesus sometimes adopts to some of this religious um, hypocrisy. And I think um, a gay marriage is a form of religious hypocrisy, whether or not the people are themselves religious, whether they see, call themselves Christians. If you're calling something marriage um, and, and you're asking a Christian to come and, and say, hey, this is just like what you guys do, isn't it? Just come along, mm -hmm. even if you don't fully agree. Just don't be mean to me about it. 
actually you have to stand against it because it's defensive to who to who God is and what He's um, said of of male female of of marriage itself as it's His institution. And so I think yeah, going forward we need more Christians who are willing lovingly to stand against this thing. And if it's going to happen more and more and more, well yeah, it's going to happen more and more and more, and you need to be ready for that rather than it's going to happen more and more and more. Therefore, just give up what you used to think about what um, what we should or shouldn't yeah. do about marriage. Totally, totally. Do, do you think? Um, I mean, it, with that example, it's it's uh, you, you know it's that going back to the loving God first and loving your neighbour again because mm. um, you know in in loving God you're saying no this goes against what God has mm. said, um, mm. but also in loving your neighbour it's saying well I don't believe that this is a good thing for you. Um, so mm. that's another reason why, why not mm. to support it. And I was thinking mm. of, um, you know, it's always such a beautiful example when we think of of how Jesus treated sin. And of course, he didn't he didn't just you know um, not stone the the woman caught in adultery. Mm. But when he says, you know, go and leave your life of sin, that's the the bit mm. that people always don't seem to want to yeah. talk about. Is is Jesus yeah. never condoned the sin, and he always. He, he's always asking us to, or, or leading us to turn away mm. from from our sin, and that's that's yeah. what repentance is, isn't it? And I'm just going to read a bit. This is quoting you in an article. You said, "A gospel of forgiveness without repentance from that which God forgives us is no gospel at all. How could it be? Mm. If the gospel delivers us from the power of sin, how could it not lead to repentance from sin?" I think you, you know you made the point perfectly there. Um, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I think I think this is the, the and I think that might have been the Jane Zan article again of the um, her saying if you say that you have to repent, you're creating a work, and therefore it's not true grace because it's not. It, it's like repenting is some kind of thing you have to do, and therefore you're almost becoming like a, yeah. Uh, requiring a sort of virtue before you actually receive the gospel. Actually, to receive the gospel is to repent of your sin. You can't receive it without acknowledgement of your sin as sin and and a, and a willing to turn away. It doesn't mean that Christians don't continue, sometimes continue to sin, um, but it does mean that there's a sort of a new life within you which which wants to move away from it. And, when, and, when, and you're out of step with the Spirit when you sort of veer back towards the works of flesh um, rather than works of the Spirit. And I think that repenting, that turning away, is so vital. Um, it's it's like and we'll, all those prostitutes that Jesus would hang out with. Again, they're not. He's not seeing them as prostitutes in in many ways, like as though that defines them as their sin, mm. their sin defining them. He sees them as human beings, and that's why he's able to to uh, to allow his feet to be washed by someone who is seen as unclean or someone who is seen as shameless in that or sh- shamed in, in that in that um, culture and actually he's that in that moment that person isn't sinning and they're not defined by that but the culture wants to define them that way so funnily the pharisees would say you are a prostitute that's what you are jesus says no you are you are a woman and i and i want you to return away from your sin and come and follow me um and you're made in the image of god Funnily enough, on the other side, you have gay people now saying, like, I am gay, that's who I am. So if you have a go at my sin, you have a go at who I am. Mm. Um, and we need to obviously separate that. And, that, and lots of evangelicals many years have been you know, increasingly doing a good job of trying to say, that, yeah, it's not about your identity. That's an important thing we need to say. And then we need to challenge 
that sin so that we can actually call people truly to the fullness of grace that is there in the gospel, which does require repentance. And as I said, you, you haven't accepted the gospel gratefully if you don't if you haven't turned away from your sin in order to accept it. Mm-hmm. If we Aaron, could end with a, a bit of encouragement, what would you say to people listening who want to be shamelessly biblical but are maybe in a church where they feel isolated or they're a lone voice, they might feel like they're the only one who is speaking up. How would you encourage them? Yeah, it's really hard. I keep meeting people for whom that is the case. Mm. Like I said, I think we need some kind of, we're in Reformation times. There will be new churches that need to be planted um, and maybe old churches that need to be reinvigorated as well. I don't think it has to be all everyone cutting themselves off. And I do really feel for those people. I think people need to be shamelessly biblical all the way down. I was asked a question at a, uh, an event I spoke at last year. There were a few young guys who were asking this issue. They're like, we see this issue, but our pastors don't, mm-hmm. elders don't. How do we show godly respect for our elders? And I think that is important to do. You don't want to cause the wrong kind of trouble and be this upstart for the sake of it and and be immature in the way that you go about this. Because you, you you have loads of blind spots yourself. We have to be always open to, to, to receiving teaching and correction. But increasingly, the... Um, the leadership class, as it were, or the kind of style of leader or the the traditions that the leaders have got will will veer in a certain direction. And those who are under that leadership need to be able to challenge it. That's the really hard thing in, in, in a godly, loving way. I do think it does require speaking directly to the leaders where possible. Now, leaders are under huge pressure all the time and they've got all, all sorts of issues and, and busyness some of that is a problem and an unbiblical way that uh, eldership functions i think today the kind of busyness that some church leaders are involved in they shouldn't be involved in and they should have be freed up to uh, focus on the word of god and prayer as their priorities as we see in act six um but still um when you bring something to them they already have a hundred other things that they're thinking about and there's other pastoral situations there's sermon the sermon for sunday etc somehow finding the right moment finding thinking of them lovingly thinking what would be how how could they best receive this how can i encourage them in what they're doing can i see some good things in what they're doing or am i just going to come across as someone who's yet another person coming and telling them they're terrible um i think it should be done face to face you know, two, three, John, which is sort of why we should have been meeting in person. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and uh, so some of those church leaders, I will be the kind that would have been too quick, perhaps, to uh, cut off that face-to-face contact during COVID. So I think it shouldn't be just done over email, it should be done in person. Um, and I think bringing that challenge is important. It may well fall on deaf ears, and you then have a responsibility just to keep going, keep encouraging those around you in your church. It might come to a, a point where... Um, those differences may be so uh, significant that you expressing your opinion might be taken as being rebellion against the leadership, in which case that would be a, a time for sure to leave, I think. There might be ways of working it out if you can work with the leaders and if they're happy to give you the right hand of fellowship and say, yeah, I think I like what you're doing. I think it's okay. Yes, you're challenging us and that's good, but it's, it's going to cause difficulties for people who don't see things the same way. Um, and and, and I, I have to stress, this is for like, focusing on just biblical emphases that have been overlooked, not just like, oh, this particular political opinion must be believed by all the pastors and priests Mm, specifically, mm, otherwise I'm going to leave. I do think there's socio-political things that are clearer, 
um, that are biblical and um, that with clearer principles for. But I'm just saying, even just on issues like like LGBT, like feminism, and like you know, like the, the gender issues, etc., which are which are the battleground issues of our day. Anthropology is the the heresy of our time. It's not Christology. Anthropology, though, that's where the battleground is: who humans are and what humans do, what they don't do, etc. Um, the identity of people. That's where the battles are. So if, if they don't see that and they think that's just not this is a distractive issue, you can challenge and challenge and challenge prayerfully. Keep keep praying and keep reading scripture. Your pastors will want you to do that, are encouraging you to do that. So um, I would say continue to read scripture and devote yourself to that and be open to what it says. I, I would argue I've been sort of, <laughs> what radicalized me was not reading some particular preacher whatever i've always had strong conservative evangelical views really but in terms of this outward speaking thing on these public issues it was probably about six or seven years ago that i started to notice not only the drifting culture which we've been on that they've taken a sharper turn but it's in reading scripture in relation to it mm. and seeing things in scripture which are so out of sync with not only where the culture's at but what the church leaders of our time publicly are saying about it and i'm going this doesn't add up like there's stuff in here that the bible doesn't care about glossing in the way that we feel like we have to gloss all the time and i just don't think that's right i think we should be totally open so it's constantly keeping yourself in the love of god and reading scripture prayerfully and asking god each time speak to me lord like speak to me and change my life and and it might make you say stuff that might get you fired one day that's ultimately what happened to me it's because i'm reading the bible and going i need to speak more like this and not and call it a spade a spade when it's a spade at the time to do it. Um, that's a judgment call. Not it doesn't say it in the Bible that you have to tweet this or speak about this. But it, you're sensing in relationship with God. What do you want me to do, Lord? I want to follow you wherever I go. And it, and it's the best life to live. You know the mm. it, it, your best life to, to, to quote to Joel Osteen. You know <laughs> your best life now. Prosperity preaching. Yeah, everyone goes <laughs> to his church because he says everything's going to be great. Come on, your best life now. Um, actually, your best life is to go out on a limb for Christ and and follow him regardless. And if everything beneath you or around you falls away, but you've got Christ and he and you are fully devoted to him, what you're doing, like who cares? And what kind of life did you sign up for when you follow Jesus? It, it's, to, it's to go wherever he wants you to go, isn't it? And say whatever yeah. he wants you to say. So do it and, and you will live a far more fulfilled, um, faithful life because you're not hiding anymore. You've not got this kind of to double life where you're pretending to be a certain kind of person out here in whether that's in church or whether that's out there speaking for the world just say to everyone what you really think that's kind of what the apostle that's how the apostles got in so much good trouble righteous trouble and turn the world upside down because they're willing to go and speak out so it's cultivating faith in prayer with scripture and being willing to work you have you mustn't just be schismatic go i'm, I'm going to be this lonely prophet it's really important to gather with other Christians who see things the same way, but also try your very best to challenge your leaders lovingly, knowing what they're under, the pressure they're under, honourably, yeah, and then yeah, seeing where that leads. Okay, no, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. That's uh, that's great advice. Going out on a limb for Christ. Um, well, look, Aaron, it's been it's been great speaking with you. Uh, great hearing um, your. Uh, your thoughts on on the various subjects that we've touched on which i think are really 
really crucial to um, the life of the church, particularly in the UK. And uh, want to just um, finish by just highlighting where people can can find you because we want to link to you. So you got you got podcast Pod of the Gaps, haven't you? You got um, Substack um, as well, which we'll link to. Are there any other things we can link to that you want to highlight? Quickly, that we can, um, we can oh yeah, point Twitter. people towards Twitter. Yes, find of course. Yeah. I've been known yeah. to be uh, to frequent Twitter, but yeah, yeah, there's the Substack is that good fight. Um, dot yep. Substack. Dot com, yep. I think. Yeah, and That's there may be a podcast. Oh, well, there may be coming out soon. A podcast linked to that good fight. Oh, brilliant! So okay, excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, well, well, we'll we'll link to all those, and of course, we just encourage um, you guys listening to keep Aaron and his family in prayer uh, especially with the arrival of the, the new baby uh, soon as well and for all that um, God um, has got in store for them and and again like I think Helen said right at the beginning just encourage you to listen to that Simon Gilbo um, pod as well where you can hear your testimony Aaron which is, which is amazing um, so yeah just really encourage you to do that um, so thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Um, and you can find uh, all the links for our podcasts on the um, link tree, which is linked through the, the Podbean site. Uh, so do encourage you to share this podcast with those you think it would encourage and, and challenge and build up. Uh, because I think what Aaron has to say is really, really worth hearing and spending time digesting. Anything to add, Helen? No, no, that's just to say thank you so much, Aaron. It was great. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, nice one. Thank you. And we'll see you on the next one. See you next time. Bye. The Owl and the Badger.